The Dickheads are presented in color. Hey, Dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth, beaming this time from all over the globe straight to your brain hole, or shall I say, hey, Merrill's. Uh, because this episode is a special Judith Merrill episode of the Dickheads podcast, Dick Adjacent. So I have uh, a bunch of special guests. This is a big panel. We haven't done this big of a panel since we did Tony Boucher. So, and I'm going to get through and introduce everybody, but I'm going to start with Lisa Yazik, who is our returning Dickhead. Now, Lisa is so cl- like Lisa. Make sure you get your card punched because when you get to ten episodes, you get an electric sheep or a perky pat, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure you're up to five or six at times being on this podcast. At this point, I, I'm excited about this. I'll take the electric sheep. I'm already going to start saving for that. I I know exactly where it'll go and everything. Fantastic! It's a pleasure to be back. Now, Lisa is a professor of science fiction studies. Um, which every time I see that title on her emails, it makes me jealous. But uh, she researches science fiction at the University of Georgia Tech. Is there anything else you want to give people uh, background on who you are before we go around? Um, That sounds really great. Just so you all know, I'm interested in science fiction as a global language. I think it's really one of the ways we all talk to each other across centuries, continents, and cultures. Next time someone tells you we have no such thing as a common culture, I dare you, go out to the person you think is the most opposite of you and ask their opinion on science fiction. If they love it, hate it, know nothing about it, they will talk your ear off for at least half an hour. And that's what I dedicate my research to. That's right. Uh, also in, in uh, the field um, is Richie Calvin of the SUNY, uh, Stony Brook. Now, you are a professor of women's studies, correct? Uh, women's, gen- women's gender and sexuality studies. Yes, that's correct. But you are a past president of the Science Fiction Research Association, so you as is Lisa. Studied. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was my second in command. That's right uh, for several years. Ah, you're number one. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Rich, you uh, um, have a long uh, history of studying science fiction. How did you get into that? Well, I, uh, sort of by accident. I because I, 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 I mean, I've read science fiction my whole life, like most of us, I think, and uh, never really considered that it could be a career option. And so I got a PhD uh, in another sort of area of literature. And just as my career progressed and as my interests and and writing sort of continued to veer towards science fiction, now it's pretty much what I focus on. So um, I, but because I'm also a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies, I tend to focus a lot on gender issues, feminism, queer uh, issues. Um, a lot of my recent work has been on queer SF. So, excellent. Um, I I I see you returning to this podcast as well. Actually, all of you, uh, Gideon Marcus, you are a neighbor uh, to me because you live um, geographically very close to me, just uh, up here in Vista. Here, we ran and into it, each other taking out the garbage on Thursday, and uh, serendipity, really. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but you uh, are Hugo nominated for uh, the work that you've done, kind of rediscovering science fiction. Uh, tell the folks who you are and, and your relation to science fiction. I I run GalacticJourney.org, which is kind of a time machine. We live 55 years ago, day by day. So right now it's July 25th, 1966. 
and a new show called Star Trek is going to come out in less than a month and a half. And you can bet we will be watching it on NBC. Um, that's it has gotten a Hugo nom or two. Um, that outgrowth of that was Journey Press, and we started Journey Press in 2019 with Rediscovery Science Fiction by Women, 1958 to 1963. Uh, and the second story in that is by Judith Merrill. And doing Rediscovery and Journey Press is how, in fact, I met Dr. Lisa and through her, Katie, and now you. So this is an exciting, growing family. Uh, and in June for Pride Month, uh, Journey Press actually came out as a queer press because we realized that most of the books we do are either by or about queer subjects or authors, and almost everyone on staff is some variety of queer. So, so yeah. hi, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Catherine, uh, Catherine Hefner, you are a grad student at the University of Kent, and you are studying the history of science fiction. You're going to be uh, the next generation of Lisa Yazik. Tell us about your background and how you got into this. Okay, so thank you for saying that, but no way, like, Lisa uh, walks on water, um, Professor Yazik walks on water, um, I say that every time, like, yeah, I'm, like, in um, her company. It's true, so. I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I study uh, the history of um, science, which is a little bit off, um, you know, not, not necessarily within, um, like, literature studies. I do STS stuff, so science and technology studies and the overlaps um, between um, science fiction and um, understanding um, popular science. I primarily look at um, women in fan cultures. So, yeah. Oh, wow. That's really cool uh, focus. I think um, the women in fan culture uh, aspect, especially since a lot of times especially through the story of Judith Merrill, we're seeing how, uh, how the uh, women in fandom kind of got discounted early on, right? So, um, yeah, so, okay, that's everybody. Let's get into Judith Merrill, um, who basically we're going to go through her life through a little bit of chron chronological order, and I'm going to try to herd these cats to, to um, get all of our uh, opinions in. But I do want to just briefly mention, like, uh, where she came from. Her grandfather was a rabbi, which is really interesting. Uh, but and her father wrote for a Jewish newspaper uh, writing about, um, pop, about culture, uh, plays and types of things. Uh, but this led to a very traumatic incident that w had um, did a lot of founding or, or leading to who Judith Merrill became because she had a real tragic event with her father. What do you guys, um, and everybody just jump in as you need to, but um, anybody, th this, this it's, she, her father committed suicide when she was six years old uh, out of crippling fear of rejection, which is a really interesting thing. Um, what are everybody's thoughts about uh, what this meant for Judith Merrill as a child to go through this and, and what seeds did it plant? Uh, Lisa, let's start with Lisa. Okay. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. So that's a really intensely interesting. Yeah. Okay. Let's start with the heavy stuff here. I mean, what's so interesting to me is, you know, I've done a lot of work on Judith Merrill. I've reprinted her stories. I've written about her critically, obviously all these things. And I so really think about that story. I really sort of think about Merrill's life beginning. I mean, honestly, as a teenager and with her entry into science fiction and writing, 
And one thing that's so interesting about that, right, is that she had this father who's very intensely worried about rejection. And uh, the one thing I got to say that, about, that I can tell about Judith Merrill from what I've read about her from, I actually got to spend a little time with her once um, at WISCON before she, yeah, I had breakfast with her and Ursula Le Guin. <laughs> I'll tell you about it sometime. It's great. We'll get back um, to that. <laughs> but like, she was the most confident person, right? She just, I mean, does not strike me as someone who was particularly worried about rejection in her own life. She was so bold, um, right? And really, you know, embraced uh, progressive politics and feminism in moments when those were not necessarily fashionable things. And, you know, she's like, okay, I'm going to date a science fiction guy. So in like two months, I'm going to teach myself the genre and learn how to start editing and writing it. And like, she just always struck me as so incredibly capable. And maybe that's a reaction, of course, to uh, not having had uh, that father there and having a father who was gone because he was so worried about rejection. But I, I'm just, I, I got to take it back apparently to some more positive place here, unless you want to all read her sort of strength as a reaction to that. And maybe it was, right? I mean, she would have been growing up through the depression and, um, you know, in an era when, when things would have been Interesting. So uh, maybe you have to be strong in situations like that, right? I mean, she didn't lead a particularly traditionally sheltered life. Well, yeah. and, and I also think her her family being part of the like kind of socialist Zionist yes. like thing at that time. Yeah, this, that that was very early for that. So yeah, you know, and I don't know much about that world at that time, but I I'd imagine that that creates a different atmosphere. Rich, you were you were about that. Yeah. So you know, I think one one of the things that um, her family and her, her grandfather and her father sort of instilled in her was a kind of political consciousness, right? Sort of an awareness mm-hmm. of, um, and, and sort of, you know, to him being Zionist. Uh, but, but it also led her to sort of thinking about the world and her place in it and sort of social structures and institutions and those things. And so then sort of later identified as a Trotskyist, um, which was also <laughs> uh, not a very popular position to take. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't really want to, you know, play psychologist too much. I mean, it, it doesn't appear to have sort of, you know, her father had an impact. It helped develop a kind of political awareness and consciousness. Um, but it was her mother. Uh, and I, maybe I'm sort of jumping a step ahead. But when her mother sort of said, don't ever dim your light, um, was another sort of um, complement to that, right? Sort of the sort of political awareness, but also this idea that you as an individual never dim your light for anybody, which had to sort of do with the, the gender and sexuality and all that stuff. So uh, I think both of them together really sort of helped form that very confident person that Lisa sat down with. Well, and, and I do think too, this is like years before Israel. So Zionism was, 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 was a different thing too. And, and Trotsky the the whole Trotsky thing, it's funny because there's a lot that gets made of Ursula Gwen's anarchism, Norman Spinrad's anarchism, but you know, the fact that Judith Merrill was such an early, you know st- you know, study of Trotsky is 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 fairly interesting because I mean this is this is not that far out from Emma Goldman touring the co- touring <laughs> the country and speaking, right? This is around the same time. So it's pretty radical views for, for, for the day. Yeah. Well, not I mean, so not only was oh, she... Go ahead, go, go ahead, Katie, I'm sorry. 
not only was she um, right, somebody who believed in this, but she was also somebody who enacted this. So um, even from a young age, she was making her own fanzines, publishing, you know, um, herself with um, looking. She was also a writer for the Challenge of Youth, which was like a, a Trotskyist, um, you know, magazine, um, and that's the culture where she met her first husband, um, Dan Zisman, mm -hmm. at the 1940 Trotskyist picnic, I believe. Yeah. So, um, so it's interesting to think about how much of that um, political culture later went on to shape um, her involvement in other um, radical, effective communities um, and all of the affinities that she shared and, and brought with her into the Futurians. No big deal. Sorry, I just wanted to fangirl out and, and get that in really quickly. Well, and, and, and I just want to take one, one moment yeah. to appreciate the fact that in 1940 in New York City, there was a Trotskyist picnic. <laughs> right. It's a kind of an astounding thing in itself. The, the 30s were such an interesting time of, of political foment, and, and communism was, was a cool thing to do. We, um, as a bedtime story over the last few months, I read uh, How the Future Was mm -hmm. um, by Fred Pohl. Mm -hmm. uh, and he talked about growing up in the 30s. This is right before he met Judith Merrill, who was the first female Futurian in 1942. Um, but he was a member of the Communist League, cause, partly because he believed it, but partly because it was a fun thing for hundreds of thousands of people to do. It's what, it was a social activity in New York. Mm -hmm. I think what made Judith Merrill special was she had a similar background to all of these guys who did all these fan activities and political activities, uh, but she was a woman. And that mm -hmm. was pretty unusual, not, not unheard of but pretty unusual. Most of these things were stag affairs. And so when she became the first future female Futurian in her own right, rather than someone that was the girlfriend of, of one of the members, um, that was pretty significant. Right. right. Well, and I also think the fact that she was such a radical is one of the reasons why she wasn't like, I, I think the, the first quote that I found in the Futurians in the book where, where she's talking about it, she's like, Basically, like, what a bunch of callow, grotesque dudes. She wasn't impressed, you know. She was like, whatever, <laughs> you know. She married one of them, though. She did marry one of them, but, <laughs> but no, she included herself in the grotesque. I'll, I'll find the quote, but um, Lisa, you had something you were about to say. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, she wasn't the only female Futurian for long. I always worry about, like, right, when you give too much credit to the first, then you make someone singular. But, like, the reality is that she, not only did she bring that sort of community-oriented ethos with her into science fiction, but, like, she really lived it and brought other women in, right? Like, she lived with Virginia Kidd, and mm -hmm. we have friends with, like, Doi Baumgart, and there were actually a lot of female Futurians, and they were doing a lot. I mean, Kidd was one of the first members of the uh, amateur Fan of the of the first uh, was it the FAPA right the right thank you so uh, amateur press association so and and you know what I think is really cool is like she brought with them that practice of everyone living together communally right that so like she and kid would pool their resources and live together when their husbands were at war or out of town for whatever reasons and then eventually other futurians would start doing it and I think that's so interesting because just the way we've gone from the question about the missing father and and, and that it sort of presumes a kind of edible family situation and a very closed family situation. But, you know, one thing that I'm remembering as we're talking here is, you know, maybe Meryl always had other support systems there, right? Like she had these other religious systems, these political systems, and then brought them with her into science fiction. Um, I'd also just point out she was also not the first radical female in science fiction. 
Gernsback's people, Lassiter, David Lassiter, his whole crew of editors, they were all involved with the Wobblies, and they were all good early socialists. And there were a number of women who like identified as Marxists and feminists who were writing for Gernsback, and he thought that was great. Um, and it's interesting because I've, I was, when I was doing research on Merrill, I'll shut up in a minute. This is my last dot. No, I no, want to no. connect based on what you guys are talking about. Is, Keep um, going. A lot of people come in and they're like, oh, there were no women in science fiction and Merrill sort of created this space. But there had been a generation with, uh, with hundreds of women in there. Oh, yeah. And they all left when feminist backlash hit the community and when like Campbell and some other people, you know, start feeling their oats. But, but Merrill knew she was reading those other people, including Lilith Lorraine, who was one of the most popular women of her day and a well-known socialist feminist, got run out of our country, in fact, for some of her activities a number of times. But um, so it's interesting to me that Merrill knew there had been this earlier iteration of science fiction, and then it feels like she's trying to some, bring some of that back, some of that uh, sense of oppositional um, political and aesthetic community, or maybe marginal or alternate. You're, you're, you're so right that there, there were, if you don't want to understate how many women there were in the field, you also don't want to overstate it and, and make the partners in wonder mistake and make it seem like they were always there and therefore there was no discrimination. Um, obviously, even in Campbell's mags, I think we counted nine women in um, Unknown, uh, the, the, the fantasy sister uh, mm -hmm. to Astounding. Um, so there, was, there, were, there were women. Um, on the other hand, there's a phenomenon um, when I was researching uh, women's space pioneers, I think it was Marcia Neugebauer who did the, the solar project on Mariners 2. She talked about how it was great being the only girl in her class. She was like 16, 15 when she went to college um, because then they took her seriously. If there were two women, then the, then the guys wouldn't talk to them at all because they assumed the women would talk to each other. But if there's only one woman, well, then she could be part of the gang. Interesting. Well, you know, it's funny too because I... I I do think eventually, and I'm just putting this out there to the ether, like there's probably a really good book or research into that, that early wave of, of wobbly science fiction just as a thing because, um, you know, that era of resistance is so underrated. Uh, just when you hear stories on a local level, just uh, take for Gideon, Gideon and I are in San Diego. And when I first moved to San Diego and learned that, Emma Goldman was run out of town by henchmen hired by the mayor and uh, who they kidnapped Emma Goldman's travel partner. Right. And because she was involved in a free speech fight in San Diego. And I learned this because I happened to walk out the same door where the henchmen pulled the guy out at, at the hotel downtown. And somebody told me the story like, Oh, Emma Goldman's, you know, person got dragged out here. And then when you look at the history and you're like, oh, my God, that was right here. There's that history with the Wobblies all over the place, right? And so the science fiction community being tied to that is a really interesting thing. And, and I'm just putting it out there. I would like to know more about that in that connection. But uh, and it is interesting that it had this influence on, on, on Judith Merrill, too. And it's obvious, too, that she... Um, you know, all the politics that she got taught by her parents and, you know... Um, growing you know when she got she got married early but and and had and had a child but you know that she was more of an open-minded person than 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 a lot of times people realize even existed then because if we watch back to tv and we see the split beds on 50s sitcoms you think in the past 
There, you, you, most people don't realize there was a lot of free love going on back then, uh, more so than we realize. So I the think Futurians were the Futurians were ridiculous. Yeah, like I mean, they. I don't know why they kept bothering getting married because they just had to get divorced the next day to marry the next person. Like, it, I guess because they kept having kids, right? I mean, and it's it's tricky to have kids out of wedlock even today. So. Right. And, uh, and it's funny because if you look at the Futurians in the book, uh, there's so many times where you're like, wait, who was dating who? And, and why, why did they? And then you're just like, all right, you kind of need a flow chart. And, and it starts to look like Beautiful Mind when you're trying to keep track of who was dating who and who was doing whatever. But um, tell me about Judith Merrill and that. Uh, tell me about who who wants to jump in on on Judith Merrill and and her attitudes and how that led to who she was? Uh, Rich, anybody? Well, I mean, uh, we started to touch on it before, and I think you know that this sort of confidence that she had, um, but it sort of it comes through if you read the autobiography that was done by her granddaughter. Um, you know as with most of us, right? She sort of has that sort of public conf confidence, but th there were, there were doubts. And so this idea that um, she could write and could write professionally and could, should take a pen name and, and all of these things, right? Um, often took some convincing, right? Fred Pohl, I believe it was, who sort of convinced her to sort of take the name Judith Merrill. And then she like, eh, I don't really want, because Merrill, Merrill was her daughter's name, right? And she wasn't going to publish on her own name. Uh, was it Fred? That, it was somebody who had no, Ted, um, Ted Sturgeon. Ted Sturgeon. That's that's correct. Yes. Sorry. Uh, and he wrote uh, a Petrarchan sonnet to convince her uh, to, to do this. So, you know, uh, um, and if you read the letters between uh, Virginia Kidd and Judith Merrill, uh, again, sort of that extended community, extended support system, but also a place where you could express your doubts and sort of and concerns. And so, you know, um, uh, I think, you know, um, like so many people, she, she was struggling for a place in the world, but she also wanted, she always wanted to change the world. And, and, and I think she would, at least initially until 68, was convinced that science fiction was a way to do that. And so she saw it as a way to enact change, uh, to enlighten people, to get them to think about things in different ways. Um, and so in order to do that, she was changing science fiction in and of itself. She was changing the mode. She was changing the expectations. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this later about sort of um, what Lisa's written about, uh, sort of the sort of domestic science fiction and, and those things. Um, you know, she wanted to go in and take this form. She wanted, I mean, she's very clear about she's operating in a male dominated world. She's one of the very few women. Uh, but and she takes this form and she's like, I can't express the things I want to express with this form. I need to make changes within it. So the way that things are written, the, the, the things that are written about, the sort of uh, the details that included, the background, the, the politics, all of those things, she sort of subtly changes the very form of it, which is, I think, really important. Well, I think one thing that's... Sorry, I'm cutting you off on your own podcast. I'm going to uh, pull up my woman card and just do it. Do Rich, it. you mentioned 1968 um, mm -hmm. as, a, as a, can you tell me why you're, you particularly said 1968 and if there's uh, anything that swings um, that way with 1968? 
Well, it's the Democratic National Convention. Um, she she was there. She was she was writing her books review for FNSF. Uh, she was on. She had gone uh, to Chicago to sort of witness and be part of the the DNC. And she saw the police beating the shit out of people outside. And she's like, I mean, it really was the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, she had been very frustrated with with the U.S. politics. She'd been very frustrated with the Vietnam War. And then she saw the police beating the crap out of um, these these people outside the Democratic National Convention. And she said, that's it. She took Anne and she left. She went to Canada. Um, And right about the same time, right, uh, she had been very vocal about her politics and her stance on the war. Uh, And in, I don't think it was her last, maybe her next to the last books column in FNSF, uh, her her books column appears here, and there's a full page ad next to it of writers signing in support of the Vietnam War, mm. right? And uh, is this a coincidence? Is this a deliberate sort of kick in her teeth, right? That she's been so vocal, so politic, and they put this ad right next to her books column of all the pages in the magazine that had to appear there, right? And all of these things are coming to a head, and she's like. You know, I have to go to a free country. And she talks about it. then when she gets to Canada with Anne, she says, I, I, I'm ex- finally experiencing the freedoms that we say we have here in the States. And so, you know, it, it's, it's all of those things that were happening in 68 in the States. And she's just like, I'm out. Okay. I'm gonna get and there and it also is the moment when she begins to think, and she's writing in her books columns, in her reviews, she's saying, like, these books are so far removed from the, the sort of exigent politics of the day. She became very frustrated with that as well. And so maybe science fiction is not the key to political change that she thought it might be. Well, let's go back to a time when she did think that it was. uh, And then we'll come back there. Um, Science fiction hit Judith Merrill like a lightning bolt, which is really cool because it happens to a lot of us. She was actually sick um, or she had gone to the dentist or something. She was she was laid up. And she, uh, the story goes that she read everything in the house that was readable. And her first time reading uh, science fiction was uh, a magazine. And once she read it, she wanted to get everything that she could. Now, there's a two-year period between when she started doing fanzines and when she published her first actual short story. So let's talk about that fanzine era. And what, what do we know about it? Does anybody have any thoughts on this? fanzine era because I think it's really cool that right off the bat in 1946 she's publishing fanzines. Well and she was already an editor of Bantam by uh, 47. Right that's great and um, and that's that's a sign too but this this fanzine era like why was that do you think it was because she felt that science fiction was so important to making change or just that she wanted to be a part of it? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Lisa can I Sorry, I'm just like, I just live Please. in your scholarly shadow. So I'm just going to say a whole bunch of things and quote all of your work right now. Um, <laughs> Go for um, it. So, yeah, so looking at fandom, um, especially in the post-war, what you have um, are uh, communities that are very, um, they're different, but there's also some overlaps in the way that they define fandom who can be a true fan, who can be a Joe fan, who is a femme fan, who is not a fan. Um, so one of the um, things that like you have to do in order to be a fan is you have to edit fanzines, you have to be involved in fanzines, you have to send your short stories out. Um, so you have to be a very active contributor um, and, and basically help to make these cultures a, a fecund culture. Um, and 
as uh, somebody mentioned, um, Emily Paul Weary's work, um, who like that was co-authored with Judith Merrill. Um, Just emailed her today. Oh, she uh, she was the one who granted us the right to use Judith Merrill's um, quote uh, in praise of Sybil Sue Blue, which we just republished at Journey Press. I would love to get that contact because um, one of uh, Merrill's early fanzines was Teapot Temper, um, which I don't have access to. Um, I've just had some of the transcriptions from from it. Um, and, you know, in um, this post-war um, fanzine, she's basically talking about um, women's labor equity um, within, like, the domestic um, and also, like, uh, labor um, and women being able to work um, while holding down um, household duties um, and, and equity amongst the genders. So, yeah. Well, yeah, it seems like she was doing really interesting things with the fanzines, too, of, like, trying to expand the idea of, of um, into social political issues that, uh, of, of the day at the time. And um, I think that that's, that's really neat because what else is the fanzine? And you could see, too, that they were also kind of trying to create, um, if you look at the, and I've only seen a few PDF scans of some of these zines, and I haven't looked into them like y'all academics, but... Uh, but my, from what I could tell is they were kind of also, um, kind of making a cult of personality about each other and kind of, that's how, uh, the CL, CM Cornblues and the Frederick Pauls and the Isaac Asimov's became personalities is because their names were all over, all over these zines. And, you know, it was a regional thing at the time because, you know, all these communities are growing their own science fiction communities, Tony Boucher and the L. Ron Hubbard's and, in LA in the early forties and, you know, eventually Boucher goes back to the Bay area and then they have their crew. And then, then they all meet up at this convention in Denver, right? That was like the big first time that they kind of cross pollinated. And it's just, it's, I think for those of us who can do this, where we have somebody in England and we have somebody in Georgia and someone in New York, like all on a call at the same time, it's hard to, to think back to, what a big deal it was to trade letters at those times. But it's also neat because you guys can research these letters. What is it like to read these letters as academics? Rich, I, I heard you already reference one. So maybe you can give us some thoughts on reading these letters from this era. Um, well, so uh, there's a lot of letters uh, published in the Emily Paul Weary book, right? So there's a chapter that's the letters between Kidd and, and Merrill. There's a chapter that's the letters, the communications with uh, Catherine McLean. Um, so, um, yeah, a lot of them are, are available. Um, um, but it's, 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 it's an amazing snapshot into this, uh, into the thought process, but of the time as well. I mean, she really, you sort of can glean from there sort of what it was like for these, I mean, they were young women at the time and both had young children at the time. And, uh, you know, sort of trying to find ways to, to, to make a living, to support themselves, to, to be active professionals, um, and the kinds of things they had to juggle and struggle with. Um, it's, it's really an amazing snapshot. There's a huge archive of fanzines on fanac.org, F-A-N-A-C.org, and in the, in the course of doing Galactic Journey, I read them every month, uh, at least the new zines. What's fascinating about fanzines, uh, especially in the late 40s, early 50s, but going on, Science fiction was dominated by men. 
90% of what came out, if not more, 90% of the names that came out were men, but it was probably more like 95% of the fiction because women tended to only write very short stories, vignettes and short stories. And the further back you go, the more that's true. Um, there, there are occasional novels, and Judith Merrill wrote a novel in 1950, but, um, but mostly short stories. But in the fanzines, women had a lot more to contribute. And I don't know how much of that is because the, the climate, the publishing climate was, was chauvinist, how much of it was, was uh, self-censoring. Um, but there's some really fascinating editorials um, and con contributions by women in fanzines. We're actually going to, we're expanding in rediscovery too, where we're going to cover an earlier era. Um, and not, we're not just going to do short stories. We're actually going to try to include some, some letters and editorials and fanzine articles by women in this sort of Judith Merrill age. So it was really a time in science fiction. It was a, in some ways a better venue for women to be heard in science fiction. Yeah. So I, I actually I've done a little work on this as well. And um, I can talk a little bit, I think, about why that happens. So you're right. When I when my uh, research assistants and I run the numbers, women represent about 15 percent of all science fiction production, professional production up to the 1960s. Um, but it's not all stories. You're right. A lot of that's in editing or in artwork or in science journalism. And so that's why the numbers feel more compressed because we tend to think about fiction. Um, right. But the women are doing work everywhere, right? Um, and you are right. I find that too, that there's a, a much higher number of women in the fanzines. And I've found a couple different reasons for that. Um, a lot, especially again, through my work with Lilith Lorraine, but also looking at Leslie Stone, right? is that a lot of women who came in and were a number of women who were professionals in that very first iteration of science fiction in the 20s and early 30s um, were disgusted by really how science fiction evolved as a professional form. Like they really felt it lost its political edge when um, sort of the backlash that struck America, feminist backlash that whipped through America in the 50, uh, 30s also whipped through the science fiction community. Um, you know, Leslie Stone left. She's like, I'm out. I can go work for the government and get some respect and some make some the, bank. The contrast but between the 20s and 30s in science fiction. It's shocking, women, right? Yeah. And Lilith Lorraine, um, she was one of the most popular writers. She's just like, I'm out. And she went into the fanzine community where she ended up publishing the first poetry magazines um, and ended up breaking a lot of actually the, the, the sort of non-Campbell type guys and women who were writing later on. Um, and what Lorraine did, and I, I've been looking around, I think other women were doing this too, is they were modeling themselves after what feminists were doing with the little magazines elsewhere in high literature. So what you saw is, because you see the same pattern in high literature, if you go look at the high modernists, like Marianne Moore and Virginia Woolf were like, gentlemen, enough please. And um, sort of, especially Moore, right, became a pioneer in the little magazine community, especially in America. The British somehow managed to suck it up a little better, but the American women are like, we're out went to the little magazines and you actually see, I'm finding something similar. I haven't done a ton of research yet, but it looks like we're seeing a similar movement in the early science fiction community. And I bet that explains why it felt so comfortable for women to express themselves more within that community because it was sort of built that way. And Gideon, if you are going back to look at uh, fanzines from the 40s and 50s, please tell me you're gonna do Alma McCormack's uh, Stardust, right? The, the all poetry fanzine. Even the letters to the editor had to be written in poetry, or you couldn't get published. So <laughs> you gotta look her up. There's yeah, only so much. No, no, I know what you're talking about. There's only so much time of the day, but I'll do my best. And by the way, I know this is fast forwarding, but just because we've talked about '68, just really quick, I find it really interesting. So there were women in fanzines, and this was kind of like the the, the germination place. And then Star Trek came out, and women exploded. 
right? And then, and that, and in many ways, Star Trek was the back door because a lot of these fanzine people ended up becoming professional authors, either directly through Star Trek or, or inspired by Star Trek. And I find that interesting because that is contemporary with Judith Merrill leaving the country. Well, and also interesting because that's where I think the reputation, Star Trek is partially where the reputation that women had to write under other names because of Dorothy Fontana being DC Fontana. Like, that's where I got the reputation or the idea that until I heard uh, one Professor Yazik on the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, um, the first time I discovered Lisa, um, I thought that women had to write under other names to get published because of your Andre Norton's and, your, and the DC Fontana thing. I just assumed that was a thing. And then I heard Lisa on Geek's Guide saying, no, no, there were tons of women publishing under their own names. And then, you know, my eyes were open. I read the future as female and then started looking into all this. So it is kind of interesting because Star Trek kind of had this mixed bag where it created a whole new fan community, right? That were mostly women or very active women. And, and of course, arguably the most important writer on Star Trek was, was Dorothy Fontana, like period. Like she gave the show so much heart and she was so important, and and uh, a lot of the best episodes in the early days were hers. So, you know, she was an important role. But anyways, back to so Meryl first publishes. She does this fanzine era, and then she first publishes her first detective story in 1948. And uh, she be, and two years later, she has a has a post apocalyptic novel. Right, which I haven't read, but it's been strongly recommended. Oh, I know. So good. I, I have to read it. The problem is, I live in '66. I started the journey in '54, so I just missed it, and I haven't had time to go back. But I will. I promise, I will. Yeah, it's on my list of books to read soon, and and well, uh, I haven't read it yet either. This novel, but this this very early era, she was so she was active right out of the gates. Can we talk about that early era of writing? Who wants to jump in? Rich. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> uh, I, I was, I, I guess I can tie these together. I sort of, as the conversation earlier, Wolf got mentioned and, and Gideon was saying, right, sort of the, the, the sort of paucity of, of women writers, uh, and this included, you know, Meryl, but so the gatekeepers, uh, we haven't talked, we, we mentioned that before, but there were, there were gatekeepers, right? In publishing, you had to go through, uh, the editor and, and we know, what some of the editors said and thought about publishing women writers. Um, there was also, I mean, if you read the, the, the books on fan culture, the Justine Larvalistier and the Helen Merrill books, both talk about this sort of fan reactions to women writers and women's, women's stories, as they put it, right? Um, and then the self-censorship, I think, is a good and important point that Gideon makes, right? This sort of uh, many women thinking, oh, I can't do this. Oh, I'm not up to this. Oh, I'm not on their par, you know, and sort of just holding, as, as Meryl's mother said, sort of covering their own light. Um, and then um, the wolf comes in, sort of, the, the sort of changing the female form. Gideon mentioned that the writing was shorter. And Wolf writes about this in Room of One's Own, right? Is that you take the everyday lived material reality of many women and you read the autobiography of Meryl and, and sort of what she had to do on a day-to-day -day basis, take care of the baby and, and uh, do all these things, right? It's like, you don't have time to sit down and write a 90,000 word novel, right? Maybe sort of between changing diapers and making dinner and, and doing the laundry, et cetera, you can put out, a, you know, a thousand word story. And so 
Um, there's the sort of time constraints on it, which sort of helps explain that, that sort of shortness. But also, as I was saying earlier, right, Merrill wants to change the form itself, right? And I think that's part of that too. So there were a lot of reasons. Um, oh, Catherine's hand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Catherine, yes. Um, Sorry, I didn't want to cut off Rich or anybody else. Um, yeah, um, thank you so much for mentioning that about like the right the labor um, within um, that these women had to face. So you see um, women within uh, 50 stand cultures. I'm thinking specifically of uh, Juanita Coulson, um, right? Who would later go on Yandro, what you know, and um, she was very influential in Star Trek fandom as well. Um, they, she used fanzines and contributed to fanzines, um, specifically um, the femme fanzine, femazine, um, it's issue three and four, where she talks about, yeah, I, I would rather be writing um, and using the, mimeo the mimeograph machine rather than cleaning up and doing the dishes um, and having, you know, spending money on an automated kitchen. And sort of like as a way to connect this back to Meryl is that um, especially like, um, you know, only a mother, there's so much automation that's going on. There's so many um, domestic um, behaviors that are being changed, um, you know, within this um, the post-war kitchen that um, it's really, I feel like Meryl's story both documents that and also works to speculate, um, you know, the future, right? Like a, a future, a, a terrible dystopian future. Um, also, uh, Galactic Suburbia, I believe, touches on that a little bit, on um, that as well. So, sorry. If you haven't read that, go read it. It's by Lisa Gaz. Yeah, and Lisa, I was going to bring up Only a Mother because that is one year into her, into her writing career mm -hmm. is, is, uh, is this classic story, which is um, absolutely one of the finest works of science fiction and horror, really, honestly, um, that... And it's one that you teach. So tell us, mm -hmm. tell, tell the listeners a little bit about this story if, that, if it's right. one that they're not familiar with. Yeah, for those of you who don't know it. So we're talking about the story that only a mother from 1949, 48, 49, 48, 49, 48, right? Thank you. 48, I believe. And yeah, 48, a marvelous short story. It begins the genre of what people, uh, what I call domestic science fiction or women's science fiction, um, what fans uncharitably called heartthrob and diaper fiction and what uh, editors who did like it called sensitive science fiction from a woman's point of view. All of these things are true. None of them are not true. Um, they really, it, it, all of these things exactly describe it. But, you know, what's important to remember, right, is not only is Meryl, like, she's sort of pulling on uh, this sort of new idea about women as domestic patriots who can serve their country best by staying home and making these safe havens away from uh, communism and nuclear war and all the things that absolutely fail to work in a Judith Merrill story usually. Um, unless you go to outer space, then it's all cool. If you can get off Earth in a Judith Merrill story, you're good to go. Um, this is often true in women's science fiction. You've got to escape the uh, gravitational pull of patriarchy, right, to, to actually go lead a, a fulfilling life, um, which is, I guess, how Merrill felt when she left the U.S. Well, um, I want to... Early so, PKD uh, as well. I'm sorry, Lisa. Early yeah, PKD okay. was all about, like the 50s was all about, yes, the story yes. ended with getting yes. off to the frontier. But go mm -hmm. ahead. Yeah. Also, though, and Dick himself was intensely interested and wrote his own domestic fictions. Men wrote these too. Ray Bradbury, you guys, right? There will come soft mm -hmm. rains. It's a great example of that. Um, 
Bradbury loved writing that domestic. So he's got a lot of those domestic stories. Anyways, right? So uh, the Merrill story, right? It's really important because it's really the first, I mean, people, other people have written domestic stories before that, but again, in a generation of women that had been sort of erased. So it felt really fresh. And of course it was being rewritten to really speak to the anxieties of the time, right? Um, and I think Merrill herself, she has this great quote in the biography that we've all been talking about where she says, a bomb doesn't care if you're a soldier or wearing an apron. And, and uh, so much of that early story is very much about this, right? So this is a story about a near future where World War II sort of rolls into World War III. Um, and uh, it's from the point of view of, a, uh, of, of what would have then been called a computer, but what we would now call a female engineer, um, whose husband is uh, away, has been working at Oak Ridge, and uh, they're pregnant, and she's both excited and nervous because uh, they know from the news that in Japan there's been a lot of trouble with mutated babies, and that when the babies show up, uh, fathers kill them, jurors, police refuse to arrest the fathers, and jurors let them off, right? So if you can feel the patriarchal dystopia building, right? But of course, this only happens in Japan. It could never happen here. And then the story follows the what if of what if this did happen here. And, and I don't think we want to say anything more about the story. Um, I will say my editors at Library of America, as you had all said, this is actually one of the most anthologized stories in science fiction by a man or a woman from any period in time. And it's memorable to people outside the genre as well. I remember when I first started working with the Library of America, and they said, you have free reign to do whatever you want with that first book, but the worm baby story, it's got to be in there, you know, got to do the worm baby. And I'm like, Worm baby, worm baby. Right. So, yeah. Well, it's one, too, that when I went to read The Best of Merrill, my first thought was, oh, I've already read that story and the future is female, so I can skip it. And then I read, started reading the first couple lines, and then I, I had to read it again because – and I was so glad I did because I got a lot out of it – that um, there's a reason why it's taught and anthologized and it's brought up over and over and over again – so let, let's talk more about Judith Merrill's fiction. Who who has read Lisa? You've read her read her novel from 1950s. So yes, um, was that her first attempt at a novel, or or, um, or was she already working with uh, in the collaborations with C.M. Cornbluth and all that? Um, it was this was her first novel on her own. They had already uh, she and. Um, Cornbluth had already started the Gunner Cade stories. Um, and in fact, as many people may or may not know, um, her first story for Campbell was that only a mother and he loved it and bought it right away and said, buy me more. Her next story was uh, the first of the Gunner Cade stories. Um, in I have a beautiful retro version called Sin in Space, where there's like a, a female astronaut. You got that one too, just taking her shirt off. It's the best yeah. cover ever. Um, I wish I had it here to show you. It's in my uh, lab at school. And it is my but, wallet. Oh, yeah, maybe someone can find it. Cover from that book that sort of, yeah. That's the best. Yeah. So, but what's so interesting is, I mean, that story is also in its own way, absolutely of its time and very radical. It's a coloni Mars colonization story. Everyone's writing Mars colonization stories at that time. But it does this really interesting thing, and it sort of imagines, like, what if real humans colonized Mars, like people who might, like, want to have sex or, you know, have, like, issues they have to work through and things like that. So it's sort of adds the psychological depth. And then, like I said, gets sold as like space porn eventually. It's very bizarre, um, but, but fun. And, uh, but, you know, Campbell hated it. He wouldn't buy it from her. He's like, there's no housewives in it. This is not what women write. And so, 
I think that's pretty funny. So she is working on those stories, but she's continuing the domestic science fiction. Are, are we as talking well. about what eventually became Outpost Mars? Yes. Yeah, because yes. I, I didn't know it by that title, so I have a complete collection of Galaxy. I read Mars Child. Um, mm -hmm. That was a great story. That's mm -hmm. actually quite, I think that's my favorite thing by Cyril Judd. Um, yeah, see, and, and, and yet Campbell wanted none of it. Um, to, well, did Joanna Russ, Russ once called him a coelacanth, and I think right there speaks volumes <laughs> about the man. Um, <laughs> well, and, and a lot of these stories that Campbell rejected found homes with Galaxy or... Oh. Absolutely. In fact, that's one thing I learned while I was doing this book. There was a network of authors, many of whom were women, who like, you would get your first rejection from Campbell and someone would reach out to you and be like, congratulations, let's, let, let, let us now tell you about the 46 other magazines that will publish you. So, Although very yeah. quickly that became six magazines because the, the early 50s, anyone could get published yes. anywhere because there were so many magazines. And the early 50s with Galaxy and Fantasy and Science Fiction, they had... Mm -hmm this sort of pre-new wave, new wave of really interesting science fiction that went beyond what Campbell was peddling in Astounding. Um, and so really, Judith Merrill had a, a, just, it makes sense that her, year, her work transitioned to anthologies because there was just so much great material for her to work with and stuff that was yes. what she would be interested in. Yeah. You know, the, this history, it's so cool that, um, you know, that, these other magazines were just basically, it was like, you, you tried Campbell, you got his feedback, and then you went to somebody else who was going to do your radical thing. And, and um, specifically, you know, I don't think there's any evidence out there of Tony Boucher saying, I'll, I'll take whatever Campbell <laughs> rejects. But it was clear that that dude was way more willing and more progressive as one of those big heavyweights yeah. in the editing in the early days. Well, my yeah, I understood that uh, he, right, wasn't he talked into joining the science fiction community by uh, C.L. Moore and um, Moore's husband, whose name I'm losing right now. Cutner, um, right? Um, yeah. And that they really were looking for someone to come in and have a more literary attitude. And, I, and obviously Boucher, right? I mean, he's, He's translating like um, you know the the like magical realism out of Latin America, and he's writing this incredible detective fiction. Like he really does bring a different literary sensibility, and it's no surprise I think that women uh, started to do very well in magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and and even eventually okay in Galaxy, even though Gold was a little a the, complicated person with a complicated life. Let's just the say early days of galaxy in particular, 50 and 51, there was really a lot of women. And sadly that declines over time um, yeah. out of the gate. There was a lot of women in galaxy and then, and then they sort of decline. FNSF always had more yes. women than any other magazine. Yeah. And part of it I think is because FNSF was more vignette oriented. And so there was more room mm -hmm. for women to that be published sense. there. Yeah. That, well, I like that. That's it. Uh, back to Merrill and the and her oh the novel the novel the right novel. Yes. okay so a quick th a few things so uh, Merrill's no novel Shadow on the Hearth is is in in many ways an extended version of well it's not the same version of a story of that only a mother but a very similar what if uh, what if World War Three came to your hometown right and it's told from the perspective of um, a housewife um, who turns out to be a, a sort of heroine in her own right gets scientifically educated, takes a stand against like the evil um, civil service people who show up and take over her neighborhood and then try to get all the women in bed with them. <laughs> uh, she allies herself with like the sane heroic nuclear scientist who's been warning everyone this is going to happen. She's hiding in the basement. And, um, meanwhile, has a really um, 
interesting relationship to both. The, her husband is lost in New York City. We don't know if he's coming back. Uh, and so she begins taking people in in her house and uh, establishes interesting sets of relationships with, with a number of people and men find her very attractive. <laughs> and, uh, she turns out to be super smart and her kids are really, you know, everyone sort of rises to the occasion um, It's or doesn't. And it's an interesting study. But what I think is really most important about that is, right, this is in the beginning of the ship when um, we're starting to see American science fiction writers write novels. And in part, this is because of the way the book publishing company, right, that, that, that you had better, uh, there was a whole network of uh, production in place and distribution for novels by that point in time. But what's also interesting, right, is that this is a crossover novel, and it sells well to mainstream audiences as well as science fiction audiences. And it's the beginning of what's going to become a really major trend in American culture in that time, where you're going to see mainstream authors increasingly writing science fiction, because as Meryl, Meryl herself said, it's one of the only places where you can like do social and political dissent in an era that's pretty conservative otherwise, right? So I think that that's cool, and that this is a book that sort of uh, is a gateway then for some people. And of course, it's also one of the first American science fiction novels that gets turned into a television show, yeah. right? And so it was on Motorola Playhouse Theater in, was it as late as 54, 53? Ah, oh, Gideon, so you just missed the, the movie as well as the book, huh? That's yeah. too bad. I'll get back the movie to it. Is Oh, the movie is marvelous. It has a very different ending than the book, which will not surprise anyone if you've read the book. Um, but you know what? It still really largely holds up. And it's just like the way you sometimes have to watch Star Trek or other science fiction shows. If you just ignore the last five minutes, the rest of it is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's interesting, too, because Lee Brackett also wrote a, a, a post-nuclear novel. In, in oh, the great era. one. Yeah, and... And, and it's interesting to see that the um, kind of the women in the in the scene were were I, I know a last Babylon like it's got taught in high schools and everything. But it's interesting that the women were having so much more pra doing so much more practical, like on the ground thinking about how this post apocalypse was going to work. Um, and to me, those those two uh, Lee Brackett's I've read Lee Brackett's novel and I think it holds up better in a lot of ways because it it looks about Lee Brackett's novels a lot about how society is reforming and I'm not sure because I haven't read Merrill's yet but I will uh but I think the idea that you know that that they were looking at it as like how, how is society going to rebuild in a lot of ways seems like those were a little bit of the themes but but yeah but it, those collaborations are really interesting too like like um I think that those were those just kind of practical practicality things of like, or just a friendship thing. How did those happen? Um, anybody jump in <laughs> between uh, Cornbluth and, and, and Merrill. Yeah. Cause I know, well, the Cutners did it too at the time. Like uh, Cornbluth was just in the air. Um, Cornbluth and Pole would work together too. Cornbluth was just a, a great um, collaborator. Yeah. It seems like it. And, and, uh, his, his work is something that I need to dive into. I have a book on the shelf. That's one of the plans for the rest of the year. But um, but it's, it just seems like there's some authors that never work with anybody else, but it seems like the Futurian crew like did really like to work with each other, you know, they, they had yeah. 
friendships. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, is it in, I don't remember if it's in Merrill's biography, but right, there's four different Futurian biographies. And someday I'm going to write a paper called The Four Futurian Futures because like everyone is so different and so just a reflection of that particular person. Mm. Um, my favorite in, in polls, if you haven't gotten to this yet, is when he's going to tell you that there were no women writing science fiction in the 50s, even though he married three of them. So right. that's, you know, it's just weird. Um, but, you know, people are, uh, let's see. He, he, I, he, they, I, I don't think he said that. I, I, we, we just read that. I don't think he ever said that there weren't women writing science okay, fiction. Okay, then it's in his website. Then it's in the website. Okay. I've quoted it somewhere. I just don't remember where it is. It might be in the website, which he did a lot when he was much older. And, yeah. you know. Oh, I, I just missed him. I, I wrote an email away. to talk to him about Galactic Journey. And he, I got a note from his estate guy saying hey, he died two months ago. It was really uh, sad. I, I, I got to meet him once, and he taught me dirty fan songs from the 1940s. <laughs> him and Phil, yeah, he was with Phyllis Eisenstein, and they taught us dirty fan songs. It was great. Um, and also a very clean one called There's a Bimbo on My Cover. That's actually the only one I remember because it was really cute. Yeah. <laughs> it was, wasn't it Corn Blue, if I'm remembering this correctly? And I think I, I, think I read this in, in Blish's book, but... Um, um, that they were at a Futurians thing and they were, and he walked in and said, ah, oh, there she is, the little mother of science fiction. And so uh, even though they were these collaborators, you know, he sort of uses this term, which, which sticks to her, which I find it difficult to be read as, except as derisive. Hmm. Uh, I see what you're saying. Well, I, I would imagine Judith Merrill seems like the type of person that she would kind of demand respect in the way that she moves through the room even like uh just from the stories that lisa's told too like her personality just seems like a kind of person that's like gonna take command of the room from everything i've seen she's like, the one where when isaac asimov kept pinching her ass she grabbed his crotch exactly yeah. right, right right and i was gonna say that but the times were different like yeah. people are like really like you know i mean i i don't know I, I, I'm with you, Rich. Like today, you can't read that in any way except derogatory, but I, I kind of think it might have been a compliment at the I time. Agree. Like, I agree. I, I just, if you read like the, the ways they described each other and the nicknames they came up with for each other, like those people lived a different life. It's like a real different frame of reference. I don't and quite understand. And they had a lot of respect for Judith Merrill. Yeah, I, I think mean, yeah. they did, right? Yeah. And I mean, wasn't it like the Futurians? And again, I, I can't remember who, who talked about this. Maybe Meryl, maybe Damon Knight. But a lot of them lived, like when Kid and uh, Meryl started living together, a bunch of them then moved into that apartment building. And so they were like knocking out walls and basically all living together. And they had a typewriter in a room and anyone could go in and work on the typewriter. So they would just sort of start collaborating on stories anyway. So this was the, I don't the, know if... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. The late 40s, that was the era of the Hydra Club, where they basically set up right. a gentleman's club for yeah. science fiction authors. And that was in New York and that was in yeah. some, it would be in yeah. someone's house and it would travel. And and so, yeah, so, so that kind of communal and they, they, they wax rhapsodic about this, this communal, almost kibbutz of science fiction composition that existed mm -hmm. in the late 40s, early 50s. Mm -hmm. Right, and the idea that they would has, have one uh, typewriter that they all kind of, like, and maybe they left a, a story, like, in the typewriter, and then somebody goes up and finishes it. It's a kind of neat uh, idea. Fred Pohl gave an outline to Kornbluth and asked for his advice, and then Kornbluth finished the novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, not what I was asking for, dude, but thanks. Uh, no, it was, it, was, it was great. It was, it was wonderful. People love Kornbluth, and Kornbluth sadly died in 56, um, aggravation from injuries, uh, Battle of the Bulge.
Yeah, for the Hydra Club, I have listed. I have a Lester Del Rey, Frederick Paul, Judith Merrill, uh, Martin Greenberg, Philip Glass, Harry Harrison, um, Jerome B Bixby, Murray Leinster, uh, uh, and uh, Davidson. So, I mean, that's that's pretty. That's some pretty big names. But what you'll notice there is there was only one woman in that list that I saw like on the uh, Wikipedia for for that. And that's well, I think Evelyn Harrison was in there too. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, 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 and it's interesting because um, you know all these clubs and all these groups that 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 they had New York, L.A., Bay Area. It's it's such a cool thing of a regional thing. It's like. For me, when uh, especially with punk rock, if somebody tells me like, "Oh, here's this punk band that you never heard of," the first question I ask is, "Where are they from?" Because I I kind of want to get an idea of their scene, you know. And what's interesting is the science fiction of this era, the scene and the area that they come from has so much to do with the style. Like the Bay Area science fiction, besides Le Guin, a lot of it's all very trippy, like weird shit, like. Whether it's and not just Phil K. Dick, but Ray Nelson and like a couple of the other voices are are, are weird. Yeah, your your Marion Zimmer, Zimmer Bradley is a little little different, but and then the L.A. is very like you know, high <laughs> you know, it's just interesting how the communities like kind of came up that way. So let's talk about how Merrill moves forward. Uh, one of the things that I did find was I found this quote from uh, Boucher where he referred to her as. Uh, the most impeccable or uh, a practically flawless anthologist and Boucher chose her not just to do the book reviews for magazine of fantasy and science fiction early on, but he chose her as the editor of the best of the magazine um, book editions, which caused controversy. Uh, but uh Specifically, when it's one of the reasons why Philip K. Dick and Judith Merrill never got along but, um, as far as the, We'll get into that a little bit because this is a Philip K. Dick podcast. <clears throat> but Boucher chose her for this role. Her role as an anthologist is really, really important. She was also doing Soviet science fiction. She was doing uh, British science fiction uh, anthologies. So let's let's talk. Uh, uh, Rich, we have Canadian. Yeah, Japan too. She did the first Japanese anthologies as well. Yeah, I have the. Uh, I don't have all of them, but I do have the Russian one here that I'm planning to to dig into at some point but uh it's really interesting that she she was thinking about this as, as a global community like was she really the first one to do that i i don't know um but it seems like she was um anybody have any information on that lisa lisa you do a lot of global science fiction did anybody do this before meryl um not that I can think of, although that I, I wouldn't take that as a definitive thing, um, but I think that this is the moment when you're going to start to see people thinking about a global science fiction community. Um, first of all, right, because the U.S. just sort of takes over and dominates world science fiction, just as it's beginning to dominate the political scene after World War II. But you also are getting a global scene, right, because Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction had a French uh, outlet, for instance. Uh, Italian science fiction explodes in this era. And interestingly, a lot of women are running Italian science fiction of all things. The Catholic Church also hated science fiction. Go, go put all that stuff together. Um, apparently, that's why science fiction came late to Italy, uh, in part. Um, but you are starting to see, I think, uh, people from around the world throwing their hat into the ring. Um, 
right? So both we as Americans are looking out at the globe, but I also think that throughout the globe, you are seeing other, other countries, right? Anytime, my theory is that anytime like a group of people comes in contact with uh, the global trade winds of capitalism, um, that's when you start writing science fiction because this is a, a language you, you use to talk to other people with. And, you know, you're gonna see that some of the first African science fiction showing up, that, things that look like modern science fiction at this time period. So yeah, the anthologies are happy. The, the Japanese are taking science fiction seriously. It had been upgraded from children's literature to something like really important after World War II, which makes sense when you're on the receiving end of a science fictional scenario like that, you begin to think about the genres that express your experience. Um, so I don't think it's any surprise. And I know that um, Asimov is doing the first Soviet science fiction anthologies at this time. So you're going to see this crew of people really being part of did, that, did looking he, did, out at the globe. Did Asimov, assemble, did Asimov assemble them or just, I thought he just wrote the forewords. Did he just write the forewords? I, I, sure. I don't know that. I just we reviewed know that the I have second them. one on the journey okay. a couple years ago. Cool. All right, well, then someone that other than Asimov is looking out and thinking. So right. I don't even care if it's Asimov, but I think it's in the air. That's the more important part. Um, uh, apparently, so no they were mind blasting uh, the Soviet fiction. So. The, the uh, interesting thing about anthology, so I reviewed the first is anthology of Israeli science fiction that was published mm -hmm. about 10 years ago, uh, Zion's Fiction, which is a cute name. <laughs> Um, and uh, what I have found with, with science fiction in the international community is a country basically has to get on its feet so that it has sort of the mental bandwidth. Um, Israeli science fiction didn't take off until the 90s because before then they were like, we're building a country. We don't have time to think about making fake countries. Um, so I think that existed elsewhere in the world, too. You had all these, I mean, in 1960, you had like, like 20 new countries come into existence. Right. Um, so it makes sense that this, yeah. the 50s is just when they're even thinking about international science mm -hmm. fiction. But the fact that Judith Merrill got tapped to do all this is pretty amazing and, and speaks to what she was into. Because she was always looking for something outside the mainstream. Right. Um, in the, here in 1966, the biggest thing that's happening is, so you mentioned uh, Wolheim. Wolheim and Carr coming out with their reactionary best of science fiction, which is pretty lukewarm, straight from the magazine stuff, pretty much stuff that the journey covers all the time. Whereas Judith Merrill is casting her net wider and wider every time she comes out with an anthology mm -hmm. to the point where she's mm -hmm. just taking stuff from completely random, interesting places to fill her, her books. Right. Right. Her first one was 1956. And, um, and as someone had mentioned earlier, right, this, this story about her just, you know, sitting around her apartment, reading everything she possibly could and then looking for more, right? And, and she was a voracious reader and she read widely and she read, you know, she wasn't um, confined to reading science fiction. She, you know, and so she really was interested in that question of the relationship between science fiction and literature, capital L. <coughs> and, and so, as, as you said, Gideon, I mean, each... Uh, of those, was it 13 of the, the best of uh, series that she did? Uh, the net was cast wider and wider and wider. And, and, and that included internationally, right? You started to see more and more international pieces being included. Uh, and so uh, I, th I think she had always had this kind of uh, mindset. Um, well, and, and she was the first to get a she was one of the first, one of two authors in the 50s to be published in the best American, uh, you know, in, in just the best short stories of American short stories collections, genre, regardless, anything, with Dead Center. 
Dead Center is an interesting story. It was one of the three that I think Daughters of Earth, Dead Center, and uh, Only a Mother were the three stories that stood out the most to me when I was reading The Best of Merrill. And Dead Center is interesting because we're, we're, Barry Maltzberg is kind of known for the, the middle finger to the space program, you know, uh, from the science fiction community. Dead Center is a pretty critical story. And this is pre-moon, you know, pre-Apollo program, kind of kind of ugly look at the idea of, of what space travel could realistically be. So Dead Center oh. is a very interesting story. I, it's one of my favorites too. Actually, my I like the same three you like. So uh, good taste for you there, David. Nice. Thank um, you. But de dead center, right? I mean, it's not just critical of the space industry. It's critical of the patriarchal center of the space industry, right? I mean, because the whole problem is they're like, oh, you've just had a baby. There's no way you could possibly design a spaceship properly. We're going to let this man who's never done it do it, right? <laughs> I mean, my goodness. So. Um, yeah, and it should be no surprise, by the way, that in uh, Breakfast in the Ruins, Barry Maltzberg was very complimentary of Dead Center as a story. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, of course, because it's, 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 it's kind of an ugly look at, at, you know, I don't know what his thing with the space program was, but he really hated it. Um, and uh, so I think he, you know, pointed to Dead Center as a story that also just the fact that it got the respect from the, the literature community. I think Barry Maltzberg uh, was giving uh, Merrill a uh, tip of the hat there for, for, for getting that honor because very few science fiction writers broke out of the ghetto to get that kind of respect. We see it now, you know, we see it happening a lot more now, but back then I think Judith Merrill doing that was groundbreaking. It was a huge deal. And I wonder if there was some jealousy professionally that she got there. I don't know because I know Don Wolheim, for example, was very jealous of the fact that, that Dick, with a book that he rejected, got nominated for Hugo with Man in the High Castle. Like, um, Maltzberg watched him throw a fit uh, <laughs> in his office saying, it's not science fiction, when it got nominated for Hugo. And so this happened. You know, I wonder if, if Dead Center caused some, some jealousy. Does anybody know anything about that? I don't know. Not, not that in particular. I, I, you know, Maltzberg may have uh, been complimentary of the story, but he had a complicated relationship with Merrill. I mean, I, he was also quite critical of her, uh, particularly later. And, and, and he saw that, that kind of casting wide the net and the kind of trying to collapse the, the distinction between science fiction and capital L literature. He, I think he was, saw that less favorably, right? Uh, I think he saw science fiction as something uh, as as a mode of writing to to be maintained that it was somehow distinct from, and so he he talked about her. He he said you know she was trying to ruin to destroy science fiction as it is and sort of collapse it into the mainstream. So I mean he 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 would recognize when she did something that he saw as sort of fitting within the paradigm, but he also was critical of part of her larger project. Well, I mean. He's a grumpy Gus, too. We've interviewed him here on the show, and uh, uh, I, I kind of appreciate his grumpiness. But, uh, but yeah, uh, Philip K. Dick had an interesting relationship with her, too, because she uh, turned down his first story, Rogue, which Boucher wanted in the, in the best of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and she, turned it, she, she rejected it. And it turned into a fight to the point where... Um, and we've uh, and the Dickians and I on online have talked a lot about Judith Merrill 
and Philip K. Dick's little beef with each other over this story. And we all kind of agree that if his, if the, if the story had been rejected by John Merrill and not Judith Merrill, it may have gotten a little bit of a different reaction, but we do think that there is a bit of a sexist reaction to the fact that he couldn't let it go uh, for years. Uh, he was still mad, even though, you know, but uh, Judith Merrill's comments, though, on the Three Stigmata Palmer Eldridge, if you've ever read that, which is personally my favorite Phil K. Dick novel, but uh, her her review of it is absolutely blistering and hilarious. And, you know, she gives him respect for Man in the High Castle, but, you know, she uh, was definitely did not hold back with talking about PKD. So, so I, have a, I have a question. Uh, obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how great she is as an anthologist and how beautiful her reviews in FNSF are when she starts covering the new wave from London uh, in the mid-60s. And we've talked about her great science fiction stories of the late 40s and early 50s. As someone who has been reviewing science fiction from the mid-50s to now, the mid-60s, I run across, Judith, run across Judith Merrill a lot. Uh, well, not that a lot. She doesn't write that much in this era. Right. Um, ever, after 53, she doesn't write very much. She wrote Wish Upon a Star in 58, which I liked very much, and we put it in Rediscovery. But her second novel, The Tomorrow People, I describe as a novella's worth of action with a trilogy's worth of ideas, and it does not get executed well in a novel-length book. Um, and she's got a few other short stories that aren't great, and then she sort of disappears from science fiction, as far as I can tell. Why, people who know more than me, why did Judith Merrill not cease to really be much of a science fiction creator after the mid-50s? Great question. Well, I, I mean, I think that I, I, something that I touched on earlier, I think, you know, as I think Lisa was the one who quoted, I, I'm sorry if I get this wrong, that she said that science fiction was a place in which you could do critique, um, political critique. Uh, and she also saw it as a place you could you could do political transformation, um, and I think she believed that for a long time. And I think that as as she reviewed more and more books, she did the anthology. She became uh, disillusioned with that idea. Uh, she said, you know, that so many of the books that she was reading were so far removed from the political exigencies of the day. Uh, and she was more and more interested in sort of on the ground political work. Uh, when she went to Canada, right? She uh, was involved in education. She wanted to do direct education. She wanted to work with disenfranchised youth. She wanted to work in a free university. She sort of, you know, I, I just think her shift, her, her focus and her philosophy had shifted. And uh, it, it was no longer something that she saw as sort of a viable pathway to political transformation. I think also the um, anthology England uh, Swings SF in 1968 was um, sort of a, to me, that's why Richard asked you about, about 1968, um, you know, and just to um, help contextualize like this, um, the publishing of this anthology. Um, so thinking about um, how much she's drawing from, you know, experimental science fiction trends that are happening in England with Ballard, you know, you have pa uh, Pamela Zoline, and you have all these like, um, you know, different, you know, you have the new wave basically. Um, and some of the fanzines um, that um, come out, like they refer to Meryl as the first lady of the new wave. Um, so seeing her take on an editorial role, an anthologist role, and then also, um, you know, doing more mentoring 
um, things within like the science fiction community, like you know, being an instructor at Clarion that um, overwore her stay, um, was actually there for much longer than um, what they paid her to be, just because she wanted to, you know, be there with those writers and you know, um, be running the Xerox machine and what have you. Um, but all that is to say is that um, now I'm going to zoom really far in the future. Pardon me. Um, I think one of the things um, that uh, I find really fascinating about Meryl is that after all, you know, towards, towards the end of her life, um, living in Canada, um, she becomes more, she continues to be a popularizer of science fiction with her Doctor Who series, mm -hmm. where she's interviewing fans, she's right. interviewing folks who are um, scientists, she's working, right, like within this realm of pop culture um, to share both science fiction and the science aspects of it and the speculations and so, um, I think she, even though like, she didn't write, she she still had that that passionate ethos that we, you know, see her embodying throughout her life, you know, in her early Trotskyist <laughs> years. Well, and I have a, another question for everyone else. Um, Fred Pohl speaks somewhat disparagingly of the Milford School um, and says that a lot of people who go through it end up producing less and not as good. Uh, and he cites Damon Knight specifically as someone who encountered the Milford School and it was not the better for it. And of course, Judith Merrill was deeply involved with the Milford School. So is, is Fred Pohl right? Does he have his head up his ass? And what does that have to do with Judith Merrill, if anything? Well, I think that's, <clears throat> can I take a pass at this? Because yeah. right now I'm putting together um, <clears throat> a new version of the uh, new, uh, a sequel to The Future is Female for the 70s. And so I'm reading a lot of stories published by Damon Knight. I've been through the whole Orbit series and compared it to all the other anthology series. I'm going to go with Sour Grapes in retrospect. Um, because I have to say of all of the series that I'm reading, and you know, like the 70s was the moment when the anthology series really took off and took over from the magazines. Um, a lot of the most exciting stuff is genuine happening in in orbit and also in um actually the one that harry harrison uh edited as well he actually picked some real winners in that that i can't remember the name of that series but um two really excellent ones but the orbit series is great and the other interesting thing is i would say orbit publishes more women and more authors of color and, and that's a small pool in the 1970s but for they what do, although it starts see, better and gets worse the orbits, Sadly. well, you know, by the time you're in like 23rd uh, volume, I mean, right, like, I, I, I mean, I in terms of the demographic a... diversity, um, right out of the gate, Orbit One yeah. was fantastic. Half the yeah. authors were women, um, and that, that does not get preserved throughout the lifetime of the series. No, but it's still doing a lot better than many of these other, uh, the other series are. It's, it's surprising, given the diversity of authors and voices, how the series don't necessarily always quite reflect that. But I think Orbit tried, and early on, definitely, for sure. So, and that would have been when uh, Cole would have been grouching about it, I'd point out. <laughs> so, uh, but I just would point out he doesn't seem to have any series that any of us are, are looking at to re-anthologize stories from. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> Shots fired. All right, so. <laughs> Kate brings up a really good uh, point, though, on the undoctor thing, which I think is really interesting, is that, you know, she eventually hosts the Canadian Doctor Who 
episodes, which is a really interesting thing because if you if you know who she is and her history, it puts such an interesting uh, spin on it because I went back and watched a bunch of those recently. And I think probably most Canadians are just like, I don't know who this lady is, but she's entertaining and she's, you know, but if you know her history and, and how much she's tied to science fiction, it, it makes it really interesting. But, you know, this transition to Canada and becoming this, uh, you know, the fact that in the mid seventies, uh, you know, she was a part of the peace movement and dressed as a witch and put a hex on the parliament. It's like, she was doing really cool stuff too. And, uh, you know, I think that whole vibe and energy that she's had throughout her whole life, you know, I, I just think it translated to once she left the country, you know, and became this new person. It was really interesting to see, like, how she kind of reinvented herself yeah. in, in doing that because she wasn't, you know, Gideon, you're right. She wasn't really writing anymore. She was becoming a science fiction uh, personality, personality. Public intellectual Indian. or public figure. Yeah. Right. Public figure. Yeah. Um, more than but, an And you know what she's doing, right. Is she's, it's interesting. It, it just occurs to me. She's shifting from print to television. So she's shifting media at the same time. Fandom is shifting its own media focus, right? Cause that break you guys noticed with star Trek that we talked about much earlier is the point in which, print fandom stops being the central kind of fandom we talk about, even though it still is a huge thing today, right? But really it's media fandom from night from Bo Trimble uh, uh, and Star Trek on out. And um, so isn't it interesting at the moment when fandom is shifting and when science fiction is really legitimately becoming um, a, a multimedia phenomena in its own way, right? We're starting the first video games, uh, TV is well established um, and, and movies get legit in the seventies. Um, that that's the moment Meryl really walks away from print and embraces uh, visual stuff. And I, I think it makes sense as we're talking about it. I think we may have just discovered something. Um, I think what you're seeing is she was always looking for the next edge, right? And that was that next cool thing. So you know, around, around this time too, um, our, our panelists for the most part, besides maybe me and Kate who came a little bit later to Meryl, you guys are discovering Meryl at this point. Um, what, how, how, Rich, how did you discover Judith Meryl, and why did she become important to you? This is what I'm wondering. And I just, I just want you to talk more, Rich. I'm just trying to get you to talk more. Too. I'm trying. I thought I was talking too much. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm sure I, I ran into stories in anthologies, right? And uh, probably, you know, the, the ones that were anthologies, Survival Ship, and, and That Only Mother, I'm sure I read early. Um, but it was really, you know, as an academic, when I started sort of focusing on feminist science fiction, you know, she, she clearly self-identifies as a feminist from very early on. And then sort of looking at this whole history that, that we've talked about, Lisa's written about sort of this history of women within science fiction, within science fiction fandom, writing, publishing, sort of, you know, what, what the history of it is, what the sort of hidden history and the erased history and all of those things is important. And you just come to discover what a dynamic force she was in it um, at that moment in time. You know, uh, she had, an, you know, she had an enormous sway. She had an enormous amount of power, you know, uh, and had had a hand in shaping what science fiction is today. And I think it's really underappreciated. Um, this, this idea, this 
tying this to the question from before, you know, why would she get out of publishing? Um, Emily Polwery says several times in that autobiography, right, that, that her grandmother just was uncomfortable with uh, popularity, uncomfortable with, with the stardom. And so part of it sort of pulling back in, in a way. Um, but, you know, in those best of series, right, that, you know, as you said, that people would go to war over the fact that they were included or not included because they knew what weight it had. When she wrote those reviews in FNSF, right, it was important. And she really was shaping the, the dialogue, the discourse around what a science fiction novel should look like, what it should do, what it can do. And, and she really brought this aesthetic from outside of science fiction of capital L literature, which channeled through the new wave, which is a term she never, ever used. Um, you know, and that had an impact on, on the field as a whole. And so, I mean, the, the import that she had, the effect that she had is really, I think, underappreciated. Is it underappreciated or? Well, not in this circle right here, but <laughs> I, think, I think in general, I think it is. I mean, I think when you talk to people, uh, they're not going to know, who, they don't know who she is. They don't understand. Well, no one knows who anyone is before Octavia Butler and Ursula K. Le Guin. That's, that's, yeah, that, that's what I've been uh, tilting at windmills against, but. Uh, yeah, right. yeah, well, I, and I admit, um, when doing this podcast, uh, yeah, I take being a scholar of science fiction more seriously as my role on this podcast, but when we started this podcast, I did not know who Don Wilhelm was. I did not know who Tony Boucher was. I did not know who Judith Merrill was. And these are all people that now I'm, you know, making a point to know too much about them, uh, <laughs> you know, to a degree. And Judith Merrill specifically was, you know, Lisa Yazik talking about her on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy it was the first time her name was aware to me. But then when I started looking to Damon Knight's books and I'm like, I went to the Futurians to learn more about Wolheim because of his role, his important role for Philip K. Dick. But then I kept, reading hilarious anecdotes about Judith Merrill and things that made me like her. And she became my favorite Futurian hands down. Right. And, uh, you know, come for the Wolheim, stay for the Merrill. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's kind of how it worked out. But Lisa, you got to tell us about spending time with Merrill. Um, not just spending time with Merrill, but spending time with Merrill kind of like, specifically to what Gideon was saying, like there's a lot of people that just think the history of women in science fiction begins and ends with Ursula Le Guin and Octavia Butler. And they're right. great. They're great. Yeah. But this was the, the one time she came back to the States was for Wiscon and you saw her, right? I did. I had breakfast with her. It was um, the only time with, she came back. Yep. I, I know it was crazy. Actually, it was really, really cool. And then weirdly, I actually met Fred Pohl in Canada of all strange things. So, mm -hmm. You know, it's always important to meet people where they don't belong. Actually, it is important to meet people where they don't belong. You, you Wherever learn a lot about you them. can. <laughs> exactly right. Red Bull in yeah. Columbus, Ohio. Oh, I love that. That's cool. Um, yeah, so uh, I, it's so funny because I, I have known of Judith Merrill like my entire <laughs> life. Like I grew up, like my parents are, are huge science fiction fans. And so I grew up watching Star Trek. And Thank you. Um, Thank Judith you Merrill. Parents. Yeah, right. Exactly. And... I remember, I don't know if these books were literally next to each other on our bookshelves or if it's just how I remember it because they were important, but I swear to God, I remember Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, which is a marvelous, marvelous early piece of Afrofuturism, if you ask me. And according to Wikipedia, I'm right on that, so we're going to go with it. 
Um, and then that was sitting next to Delaney's Dahlgren, sitting next to Joanna Russ's The Female Man, sitting next to Meryl's Daughter of Earth. And I do remember I all read them about the same time. I was maybe 11. I had no freaking idea what I was reading with the Delaney and the Russ, but I'm like, oh, I must keep reading this, you know, because it was like, you know. Uh, but Meryl, I got right away, 100%. And especially the stories in Daughters of Earth, which are so much, right? It's three novellas, and they really are all female-focused novellas. And the science is really good for the era. Yeah, well, and I remember my, I, I always liked Daughters of Earth because I liked it's like generations of women, six different generations, and each generation hates the generation before her. It's so great. You're like, oh, my God, this is exactly what, like, life is like growing up as, like, a, a woman in a middle-class family. So that was hilarious. But also, it's a story that dreams big. And it's a story that celebrates space exploration and the potential for women to finally really fulfill their destinies amongst the stars by literally leaving Earth. So that's cool. But I liked Home Calling. That was always my favorite story in there. Do you guys remember this one? It's about like this like family, they're traveling and their spaceship crashes and the parents die. And it's up to like the six-year-old girl <laughs> to figure out how to take care of her two-year-old son. And like, turns out she's telepathically linked list. to like the... She's telepathically linked to the alien queen of this planet who's a gigantic ant and who is, whose whole purpose is to give birth. Um, and she can't get out of their, their, her castle anymore because she's so big. But she's like linked to this girl. And she's like, I got to get out there and find this girl. And it reminds her of when she was a young girl explorer. Fantastic wow, story. Awesome. I mean, blew my head apart when I was a little kid. And to this day, I still really like that story. I think it's super awesome. I'm going to teach it next semester. Why don't I teach that one more? Um, uh, so podcast having an impact. I love to hear. It. Yeah, yeah, for real, right? So um, I don't remember. So now I just shared with you like my cool things about Meryl. So like, so I was always surprised to find out that that other people. I well, first of all, I was shocked that science fiction wasn't all about black people and women. Like when when I found out it was about white boys and their toys, I was like, really? Because that's just not the world I grew up in. It was really strange. Um, but uh, it was cool when I came back to science fiction as an adult scholar um, and as a science fiction scholar, like going back through the old 50s anthologies. And that's where I re-met Judith Merrill and all these other women's names. And I was like, I wasn't surprised to find Merrill, but I was like, my goodness, who are all these other women here? Um, and that was really a great moment. Um, Meryl herself, when I met her, like I said, I guess so. I guess it was the one time. Were you at that WISCON, Rich? I wasn't at that one. I missed it. Okay, yeah, that was good. Um, and I was working at WISCON, so I had access to meals with authors and things. And that's, so I had breakfast with um, Ursula Le Guin and Judith Merrill, and it was hilarious because they were both exactly like what you'd think they'd be like, like, right? Like Le Guin is super calm and collected and very intellectual, and Judith Merrill is not. <laughs> She's real salt of the earth um, and a real salty lady. Like, it's great. It was breakfast. She came like rolling in. She's in her wheelchair. I swear to God, she had like a martini in one hand, a cigarette in another hand like a coffee in the third hand. I don't know what was going on. And she was just so dynamic and vibrant and she just took over the room and, um, and she played to it. She really played like a public intellectual. Like she came rolling in, like I am a rock star and you are now going to pay attention to me. And she made it worth your time. Like she had a marvelous story, such a good storyteller. Um, and uh, this will date me, but this is right around when that movie, when how Stella got her groove back came out and somehow it came up. And Judith Merrill's like, oh, let me tell you about how I basically invented sex tourism in Jamaica. And then like launches into this long story that involves basically sex, drugs, and rock and roll at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> and 
poor Ursula Le Guin was just very quiet and very patient through the whole thing. <laughs> I, just, I just remember seeing her knuckles on her orange juice glass getting whiter and whiter the more that Judith Merrill talked. And you just realize they were such very different people. Um, but I think that... Um, both so important to... to I know, to I know. Cool. I think Le Guin was really gracious to back off and give Merrill the moment, especially because that was, you know, she didn't have much longer at that point. And I, it was, I think, nice that everyone had this moment to interact with Judith Merrill, because you still had a good 15 years to interact with Ursula Le Guin after that, so. Well, and yeah, let's face it, Le Guin is the next generation, right? I mean, Judith Merrill yes. is, is in the Futurians. Uh, Le yes. Guin doesn't publish her first story until 62. It's Before true. Le, when Le Guin came on the scene, there were three, do, there were three dozen women science fiction authors who were active, uh, including mm -hmm. Judith Merrill at the time. So, mm -hmm. so Le Guin came into, it, not taking anything away from Le Guin, but she came onto well- paved roads. Although it's funny, right? Because whenever she tells that story, it was not a well-paved road and she was the pioneer. And, you know, yes, in that, was she a pioneer in a new group of women coming forward and in a, but it's right. Like she comes in at the same moment. It's analogous to how Meryl came in as right as one group of women are leaving. And this seems to open up room for new voices and new perspectives. Um, so maybe she was just being, she was being polite to her elder, or maybe she saw similarities in their situations. Um, or I just think Ursula Le Guin's a well-behaved woman, frankly. <laughs> was. Well, and that's, that's the thing too, is that even if you're, and, even if there has already been a path, there's still, if you're not the, the, the white cisgender person like coming into it, you're still going to feel like a trailblazer because there are going to be people who are going to push back against you. So I'm sure Le Guin felt like she had to, to battle a lot of that stuff, even though we know those battles had been fought before yeah. by others. And yeah. that's one of the things that's important about teaching this history because, mm -hmm. and that's one of yeah. the things that I found in this podcast was that when I, since I didn't know these people and now I'm learning them, I want other people to have access to that information by just putting in their earbuds and listening to something. And, 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 you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, we do these things. And, and, but I do think, you know, your experience of being able to kind of like meet the person, I think, how did that change your perspective? I mean, you were already familiar with Judith Merrill. I mean, like, do you, do you read that work differently now, Lisa? I, I'm just wondering, because, um, yeah, you know, I, I do. And it, it wasn't just from meeting Merrill, although I met Merrill at a point where I was um, re-meeting science fiction in, in general. And um, at, at a point where after having spent um, a couple decades as a cyberpunk, um, sort of spiritually and literally, um, and then having spent 10 years in the wilderness of postmodernism, um, I, I was looking for uh, more relevant and, and more utopian oriented uh, things to think about and look at. And I sort of re-met Merrill at that moment in time. Uh, and I was re-meeting other science fiction um, work by Kathy Goonan and Nalo Hopkinson and, of course, Misha Noga and Pat Cadigan and, and all these great people are right. I started to write in the 90s and 80s. But um, it, it was cool. It was cool to meet Merrill just because, like I said, she was so rowdy. Like, it was just cool. And the energy there, like, sort of reminded me of what I had always loved about science fiction was that kind of energy. Um, like I said, it was real kind of punk rock. She was real or rock and roll. She was really funny and edgy and lively. And I thought, 
well, that's obviously what I want to be when I grow up. Like, I want to be Judith Merrill when I'm 75. So maybe it wasn't even just about, like, literature. It was just, like, reoriented my life, you know. Got myself a grown-up idol, you know, to follow. But, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's important, too. So uh, before we start kind of summing up a, a lot of this with, with Merrill, let's talk about the fact of her collection, just the importance of her collection um, of, of books. I know, like, the founder of Locust thinks he has the largest collection of science fiction in the world in the Bay Area. And Judith Merrill, you know, had this large collection that she left in Toronto, the Spaced Out Library, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was renamed to the Judith Merrill's collection. Yeah, which is great. That Yeah. What does the collection itself, you feel, do? Well, you know, um, she spent a lot of her life... I mean, I, she saw science fiction as legitimate. I mean, there's no question. Uh, but she also knew that not everyone did. And, um, but, so I think a lot of what she was doing as she was writing, if you, if you read through the reviews that she did and the introductions to the anthologies, she's really trying to work out this theory of, of science fiction and how it's related to literature. And part of this is, is about sort of legitimacy, right? And so then donating her, her collection, which is, is enormous because she read voraciously, people sent her everything in order to review it. You know, so she's got this huge collection uh, in a well-established major metropolitan library in Toronto. It is, is really important for the sort of solidifying the legitimacy of this mode of writing that she was so uh, invested in. Uh, Gideon, what do you think the collection uh, means for the world? So repositories like that are really important for a couple of reasons. One, for, from a historian's point of view, having everything in one place like that, having, having a place you can go and see, and, and see the cross connections of things is just is very important. And, and there, as you say, there's a few nexuses where that kind of thing exists. Uh, my house, in some degree, is actually something like that. Um, but the other thing that it really has a significance beyond Judith Merrill at this point is libraries are becoming a thing of the past in terms of places that have physical books. And I think just a, pla- a physical place where someone can go and in a magpie fashion find tremendous literature everywhere they look. I think is vitally important because it's going to inspire a new generation of people people to find things that they never would have found otherwise because the internet is a very targeted thing when you look for something on the internet you're supposed i'm going on amazon or whatever and i'm typing in the book that i think i know the name of to buy a copy of it there is no serendipitous discovery and someplace like the the judith merrill library where she's handpicked these five thousand books that she originally seated it with and then the canadian public library has been added and added and, and recognizes the importance of it someone coming to this is going to be able to find so many things they never expected to find. And that gateway to discovery is really important. Lisa? So, you know, I think one thing that is really cool about the Spaced Out Library is other authors were leaving, and, and still do, right, leave their collections. Um, and, and they become important areas for, for research and for hanging out. And the big one I'm thinking of is um, Jim Gunn, right, a new wave science fiction writer who started the Gunn Center for Science Fiction Studies at Kansas. All of his books are there. That's a really rich resource. But, you know, the difference between the Gun Center and the Spaced Out Library is anyone can get into the Spaced Out Library, or at least that was always the intent. I don't know what the status is today. I think it's still very open to the public, right? And, mm-hmm. I mean, and what I love about it was that even as Merrill, I do think, 
like any good man from her era, wanted to leave a legacy, right, and leave her mark on the world and did it very successfully with that big collection. Um, she also does it in a way that's so Judith Merrill and so different than, say, James Gunn did it, right? Like, Gunn was all about, like, getting the money and putting it together and getting this very sort of, like, uh, elite collection together that really is for scientists and, and, and academic researchers in some ways. And whereas my understanding, the Spaced Out Library, it was like apparently initially there were like bunks in it. So like homeless kids could come in and like read stories right. and sleep there. Like that is how you do it. That is how you build a better future, right? Like she's literally building the future that she wants to live in in that little room, right? And I love that, that like she built Meryl futures would, through her stories and she built them through her yeah. actions by building rooms where different futures could be built. She would totally be punk rock if she was born in this this day and era and she'd be fronting a band. And I, 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 I'm totally positive of well, it. Or a riot girl. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, I appreciate that. And I like the idea too, that um, you could be looking at copies that she read herself, you know, when, when you're holding up books, that, that's, that's just like a cool connection to the history for, I, I get into the tactile things of, of, of those things when you go to the collections and you do that. That's, that's a really important yeah. thing. Kate, your feelings on the spaced out library. Yeah. So, um, there has been a dedicated um, curator at the um, Space Out Library, the Lillian H. Smith Library, um, and the um, that person retired. The most recent um, curator, I believe, is a woman um, that they hired a few you know years ago. There's definitely a, um, a very much of a feminist placement um, of the branch in which like this is placed within the Toronto Public Library. Um, and I think about um, how, you know, like what a legacy Merrill um, has left for fans, for academics, for scholars, and especially within, um, you know, early fandom, you know, first, second wave folks did not have the ability to go to the library um, so, and, you know, check out these, these sort of like science fiction materials, these new magazines and what have you. And you see a lot of fans creating their own, you know, little mini libraries, um, trading materials through the mail, sending Mimeo stencils. So the fact that, you know, Meryl prioritized um, this, you know, these materials, this information, um, and then, you know, made it a um, public, publicly available, um, I think is, is just a testament to um, her feminist uh, legacies and, and her radical politics, so. Yeah, and it's a, it's a cool um, physical thing that exists because of her and because of her life, and, and, and I, I think that even if we're not there, we all benefit from it being in the world. It's one of those, one of the, one of those cool things. But uh, so um, <clears throat> to kind of go around again a little bit, um, one of the things I, I think that after 68, when, when Meryl left, um, you know, there, there's a lot of, of science fiction writers who get a lot of attention for being radical, right? Your uh, Le Guin's, your, spin rads, you know, but the fact that she actually left is something that, uh, well, spin rad did eventually too. He's, he's in France, but, um, 
But you know, I th- I think that it's undervalued how much she she really like put into action um, her thoughts and ideals. Um, and so I I guess what I'm gonna how I want to kind of sum things up is what do you think is the most important thing that that her legacy needs or we need as people who want to keep her legacy alive what what should we focus on as far as spreading the word about judith merrill and and what's most important starting with rich and we'll go around i know that's heavy that's a a big question um with with her with her fiction you know we, we read it and we see sort of the relevance we see the timeliness of it but one of the things that i've run into is and and not just with Merrill, but with other people uh, of this period, is, is that with students today, I, I sometimes run into this sort of, uh, not, not that they don't like the story or can't relate to the issues, but, but the sort of pacing of things, right? Um, I, 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 I taught one time um, uh, a, a film, and, and students just sort of couldn't stand the pacing. They were like, they, they wanted things to happen more quickly. And it was the Stepford wives and sort of the big reveal moment, right? Where they goes in and he sees that his wife is there and the camera kind of pans across the room. It takes like 30 seconds for the, sort of the camera to pan and you actually see his wife standing. And my, my, my students are like, ah, just get there already. It's like, what do we, you know? And so with something like that only a mother, again, not that the sort of the horror of it and the sort of reality of it and the, and the relevance of it, but the pacing of it sometimes, right? So, I, I think I think it's still important to teach them and sort of talk about the, again this snapshot shot in time, but for me the most important thing is is sort of the ways in which she pushed at the boundaries uh, of what science fiction is and does and can be, you know the, the sort of saying we're going to go to planets we're going to have families you're going whatever those are going to look like you're going to have families you're going to have offspring you're going to have to deal with feeding kids and changing diapers like come on let's be real about this this is the practical stuff, and you know people at the time dismissed it as like, you know, this, the diapers variety, but she changed, right? What science fiction was about. And she pushed constantly at those boundaries. And that's the important legacy. And that's the thing I think uh, it's not a static thing. It's constantly in flux and Merrill changed it. And I would argue changed it for the better. Yeah. And that's what I think we need to show uh, our students. And me personally, I think the, um, the character that Judith Merrill was, in addition to the the output is um, to me is kind of important now having just learned about her in the last like couple of years I just I feel like I'm so happy to have learned what a character she was you know and uh, the impact that she had and knowing that this type of person existed as far back as she as she did I think it's something that young people could really benefit from knowing like, Hey, don't think that every, everybody in the past were just like cookie cutter stereotypes of depression era people, you know? And, and, um, and, and I thought, I think that's kind of an important legacy, but uh, as far as the fiction goes, um, I think the, um, the, 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 how far and far ahead she was and, uh, is is really important. So, uh, Gideon, um, what's what do we need to teach about Judith Merrill? Like, what's the most important thing? I think Judith Merrill is kind of an era. She's really the sausage wrapper 
of the late 40s to the mid 60s. And there's a that is a particular era of science fiction that has a definite beginning and a definite end. And Judith Merrill really encapsulated it by preserving it in the various forms that she did. Um, certainly most people are going to come across her not through her fiction, but through how she salvaged the fiction up to and including giving up her science fiction collections of the Toronto Public Library. Lisa. Um, so, right, I think a lot of what we've already talked about, I do think it's important <coughs> that she um, pioneered a new subgenre of science fiction that provided a new generation of women with an entry point, and hopefully not the only entry point, but an important entry point into science fiction. And frankly, a genre that, uh, right, domestic science fiction that today men still continue to write. I would say Kim Stanley Robinson is a marvelous example of that, but uh, John Varley, Trent Hergenrotter, I could go on and name others. So I think that what's important is that, right, not just that she uh, gave, gave us this new kind of character-driven uh, home-oriented science fiction, but that, uh, that women could write, but that it became useful for all kinds of people to, to write about. Um, and especially because the reality is, like Katie, I'm a science and technology scholar. Well, only occasionally. I think Katie's more of a real one than I am. Um, but I play one on TV occasionally, like right now. And, um, <laughs> right, and, uh, you know, the, the reality is, I keep telling my students this, is uh, laboratories and launch pads are awfully sexy, but that's not where most of us experience science, technology, or the future. We experience it in our homes with things like running water, flushing toilets, microwaves, right? And, and Merrill reminds us of that and, and opens up this uh, uh, wormhole in science fiction back, back through from outer space back home. I think that's awesome and really important. Also, the boundary pushing stuff. Absolutely. Rich, that's so interesting. You say she never used the word new wave. I've often heard that she invented the phrase new wave. I think that that's exactly like the, like the phrase Star Wars. No one is ever going to take credit for it. Like Star Wars when applied to uh, the military in the United States, right? Um, but regardless of whether or not she used the word, right? Like she clearly opened our eyes to the very different ways one could do speculative storytelling and the way that that was happening in lots of different parts of the world. Right. And um, I, my you students know, like Meryl. They like her, actually, I find. Um, they find her literary. It's their, for, my students are engineers. And so another thing that's great is if you have friends who are engineers who want to get their literary science fiction on, she's a wonderful starting point. Very yeah. good starting point. Catherine. Oh my gosh, I echo like everything that's already been said about Meryl. Um, I think, um, you know, uh, one of the things that I most appreciate about Meryl's work is um, from the beginning, from 1948, that only a mother having the preface of this sweet little feminine story from a new up-and-coming um, author, uh, you know, within um, the Pulp Magazine, to, you know, flash forward 20 years later, and um, she is offering, um, she's writing a little preface about um, some kind of unknown author named Pamela Zoline who wrote this really weird thing called Heat Death of the Universe that's numbers and there's a Sandra Boyle or Sarah Boyle. And um, so I like that, um, you know, throughout her works, um, she, yeah, she fought um, and opened up the gate for other folks. Um, and kind of didn't give a shit about being labeled diaper fiction. She just went in there and did it anyways and did a damn good job of it. So, 
Yeah, and, and it's great that we have science fiction writers getting up on stage, accepting awards and saying John W. Campbell was a fucking fascist. That's great, but it's also awesome that somebody went into his office, pointed a finger at him and said, you're going to publish me, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a story that you won't turn down, and I'm, I'm going to, you know, force – I'm going to get into your pages, and I'm going to change things. It's fucking awesome, too. That's totally – you know, and the fact that that happened, you know, 50, 60 years before, you know, it's all it's all part of the grand tradition of telling John W. Campbell to fuck himself, I guess. But um, on top of that, um, it's the grand tradition of, you know, Judith Merrill, you know, being a rebel rouser, science fiction writer to the, the ones that are doing it today. And I, I think it's great. And it's important. She cannot be forgotten for those things. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I put this panel together and wanted to have you guys here and you guys definitely delivered. I uh, appreciate the, um, the, that you guys brought more knowledge than I had. And, and um, I, lo I love the opinion. So let's go around and give everybody uh, a window into how they can find you and your work and interface with you, starting with Rich. Uh, what are you working on now? Feel free to go a little deep. Like, what are you working on now? Where can we find your work and, and follow? Um, so, yeah, uh, I mean, I guess one of the reasons I was here is because the, the, the book I did on Judith Merrill, I edited a collection of her, her nonfiction writing through, from Aqueduct Press. Uh, and I just I have a new book coming out from Aqueduct, uh, probably early 2022, called Queering SF Readings. So I have... Um, I forget now, 36, 39 readings of contemporary queer SF pieces. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so, um, and then currently working on a book on C.J. Cherry, um, a sort of biocritical look at Cherry and uh, her work. And um, she, um, she was and is an interesting <laughs> character. has been writing for a long time. Her first book came out in 76. And uh, uh, although she was heralded for a long time as kind of the feminist writer, she says uncategorically, I'm not a feminist. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, uh, the book will try and look at that and try and work out sort of her politics her neoliberal politics and her kind of post-feminism and try and put all that together. So, uh, that's what I'm working on. Rich, are you planning on talking to Betsy Wolheim for, for, uh, for this book, because she has lots, she had lots of C.J. Cherry stories on, on our interview with her. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I should. I mean, I've talked to Betsy before, but um, at Wisconsin several times. But um, yeah, it's it's a good tip. I probably should uh, look her up. Yeah, yeah, she definitely told some C.J. Cherry stories on uh, in our interview with her. So cool. I recommend that. Thanks. That that Thanks sounds great. Um, it's interesting that she didn't refer to she. She did not refer to herself as a feminist sci-fi writer. That's interesting. Yeah, she said, I'm not a feminist, I'm a humanist. That's, she, she says it categorically. Okay, well, okay. Uh, uh, Gideon, uh, uh, where can people find your work, your uh, really interesting uh, galactic journey? So two places that you would want to find stuff that I do is if you go to galacticjourney.org, that's updated every other day. There's about 20 writers working on it now. It started with just me six years ago, and now it's... It's a big who's who, and it's really, really fun. And, um, the other place you can find us is journeypress.com. Um, rediscovery is, is probably the most interesting thing to people watching the show, perhaps. We're actually coming out with a second volume in next March, and Lisa and Katie are going to be 
contributing to that introductions to at least two of the stories, which is awesome. Um, but we also have other, we've reprinted Tom Purdom. We've reprinted Roselle George Brown, who if you want to talk domestic science fiction, that was her bag. Although this book is not that this book is the kick-ass women starring in a science fiction adventure story. She pretty much invented the genre right before she died. Um, and if you like, Heinlein, Norton-type juveniles, then my Keeter saga is probably something you will enjoy. Yeah, that's been on my radar. So, uh, I, um, uh, Gideon, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, uh, really good stuff. Uh, Lisa, what are you working on? All right, so I am working on, um, I think I mentioned a little bit earlier in this conversation, we're doing book two in the Future is Female series. Um, so this is the 1970s. Um, we might call it the future is female forever, but but we've got a few more decades to get through, so I think we're just going to keep numbering, hopefully. Um, so that's been really exciting, and it's been a great opportunity both to go back through the people you remember from the 70s and all of the many, many women who joined the community at that time that you don't remember. Um, and I have been rereading C.J. Cherry, and she's right. She's not a feminist, Rich, it's, and it's fine. <laughs> It's perfectly it cool. Is, is not all women, not everyone has to write feminist science fiction, and not even all feminists write feminist science fiction all the time, right? So um, she writes lovely stuff, but no, it's not feminist. Um, and that's totally cool. Although she does do like feminist rewritings of uh, mythology and stuff. So yeah. I think that might be like Cassandra and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. But um, yeah. uh, so uh, maybe a fellow traveler, certainly. Uh, Maybe just like some people are sci-fi curious, she's feminist curious, perhaps. Um, but yeah, so that's been a lot of fun. And um, I know Katie and I are going to have to talk because I know Katie knows a lot about fanzines. And uh, we really want to, this is something big we want to do with this version of uh, The Future is Female is acknowledge the work that was done by the semi-pro and amateur community and make sure that we're including artwork and uh, stories by all those women who were uh, putting together like Janus Magazine, uh, what are all the ones that we were just talking about? Um, Pandora, uh, which uh, Femzine, I actually think they might be the same things we're talking about, Katie, with different names. Um, but you know, so there's all that great stuff. So check, check it out. It should be out in about a year, year and a half. I think we're aiming for Christmas 2022. Oh, I so thought you were going to sure come out March 2022 and we were going to like cross pollinate. They've moved it back because it sold so well at Christmas last year. Um, so, yeah, I don't think so. We're gonna, I don't know if we'll be able to or not, but we'll see. Hopefully. I was telling all the bookstores you were coming out in March. Oh, well, I'll tell uh, when I oh, sell no. my book. In, you know what? When I sell my book in March, I'll say, now look for leases in December. Right, right. So you're in March 2022. I think we decided December, but I'll double check and we can let you know. We wanted Sometime to hit women's March. history month. Right, right. I thought we did too, but apparently they want to hit uh, the holiday reading lists because that's how we get on all the best of lists. So I know the things that people think about. Um, anyway, so I'm working on that. And then in my academic life, on the more academic side of my life, I am co-editing the Rutledge Companion to Gender and Science Fiction. It's a marvelous uh, anthology. We have uh, people from all over the world, including Rich, who I believe probably owes me an essay. Um, but of course, you have until uh, September 1st, if I'm remembering correctly. So I'm sure he's working hard at that even as we speak. He's in uh, the office, it looks like. <laughs> I know. No, it's going to be marvelous, though. My, um, I'm co-editing with a group of wonderful women from around the world, and we have people from all around the world who are going to be contributing to this. We're very excited about it. Uh, and we're going to get, be able to include original feminist science fiction artwork as well, and we're very excited about that. So those are my two big projects now. And then 
in my back pocket. I've been working on, um, I've got a project I'm working on on science fiction and fashion right now, which obviously is going to have to be called fashioning the future. <laughs> um, but that's been a lot of fun. Right now it's primarily a teaching and public intellectual um, project. So you can either see me do public talks on it or drop it on one of my classes, but maybe someday it will actually become a, a book um, in my abundant free time. Uh, Catherine. Yeah, so I'm hoping that I'm going to finish my PhD next year um, in another country. I'm in England. Yeah, um, COVID stuff. Uh, I'm not worried about it at all in my voice. But yeah, so hopefully next year finish PhD. And um, I have uh, a chapter that will uh, probably come out about dinosaur erotica e-media and um, slash fiction of rereading Jurassic Park um, and a chapter on Star Trek um, fan fiction for the Rutledge handbook of Star Trek and just a bunch of weird stuff that I people have asked me to do so I'm psyched for it yay yeah that's awesome we love to have the next generation of researcher uh, be a part of uh, the dickheads as well. Well, um, and I just want to say, if you've listened this far and you came for the Merrill, um, it, it, you may not be into Philip K. Dick, but I hope that people will check out our podcast uh, and the other things that we do. Anywho, uh, dickheads uh, podcast, we've got um, decades worth of uh, Philip K. Dick coverage. And if you enjoyed this panel, we did a similar one on Tony Boucher, and I highly recommend that one. It's really good, and uh, we will continue to cover um, uh, voices from the old school in episodes like this, so I hope people will check that out. And as always, dickheads, stay paranoid. Thank you for joining us.